Welcome everyone to the Super Angel podcast. We're super excited to have you with us today. And we're really, really excited to have our guest, Paul Forster, ex-founder of Indeed.com, very active angel, angel extraordinaire. I think one of the angel investor who both Anthony and myself have done many um, investments with. I was actually looking back through and I think, Paul, I may have met you about seven years ago. I think it was on the on the Juro board. So time has time certainly flown by, but we are delighted to have you join us today. Lovely to be with you, Tom and Anthony. Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say, Are you tired of only knowing what European VCs sound like? Yawn no more. Leap over to eu.vc where the episodes come alive. Now with every new episode featured in full video, high def, pristine lighting, emotions up close, and men and women who pick their boogers, don't settle for eavesdropping on Europe's best investors. Join the Peak Show instead at eu.vc. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So let's get started. If you'd like to share with the audience a bit about your story and what got you into angel investing in the first place. I was a founder in a former life. Uh, I lived in the US for many years, started a couple of businesses there. The second one was Indeed. I uh, started that in 2004, built that uh, into a big business, uh, sold it in 2012, and uh, moved to the UK, where I'm originally from, uh, later that year. And I've been doing early stage investing, early stage tech investing since then. So I've been doing that for about nine years now. And um, yeah, it's been great. I never did any angel investing when I was a founder, which is obviously very different from many of the, uh, many of the founder, founders and operators today that also do an angel investing. But yeah, it's been a really exciting journey. And, and would you remember like what got you into that in the first place potentially, or maybe any memorable deals that got you started? Yeah, I, I think it was uh, through Cambridge Angels, some of the early deals that I came across. The first one I invested in was a company called Saitora. Uh, and I was attracted to that. I really liked the team. It was doing data aggregation, which appealed to me because of the relationship to Indeed. Uh, they were trying to create a political risk analytics tool. That didn't work out. They ended up pivoting to InsureTech. Uh, but before I invested in that business, I had coffee with the founder and CEO, Richard Hartley, at Fitzbillies in Cambridge. And we were talking about the autonomy story and Mike Lynch had recently exited for 11 billion. And Richard looked me in the eye and said, I want to build a business bigger than autonomy. So I love that ambition. So I do like ambitious founders. And that's turned out to be a successful business. It um, did a series B a couple of years ago. It'll do, it, do a series C soon. And I've been on the board of that uh, company since, since the beginning. So that has been um, an interesting starting point. But now most of my investing is uh, probably more London-based companies. I do quite a bit in continental Europe and the US as well. 
I guess looking back, right? So the kind of opposite angle, um, now that you've been doing it for so long and you've made so many investments, you know, right before we jump into kind of a bit more about the strategy and the likes, would love to to hear from you. What would you say angel investing kind of gives you personally and professionally? I love working with founders. I love the energy, the creativity. Uh, I love the variety as well. I mean, one of the features of being a founder is you've got to be extremely focused to be successful. And the luxury of being an investor is you get variety. You get a lot of intellectual stimulation from getting to know different uh, industries, different sectors, uh, working with different people. And that uh, sort of intellectual stimulation and variety is, um, is an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. They say you're kind of the, the aggregate of the people that you talk with, right? In terms of kind of uh, the, the speed of learning and, and how you morph, right? So it's such a privileged job also coming at it from another angle. And so that mental stimulation is, I think, what keeps me going at least. Um, so, so thank you for sharing. Well, what, you know, one of the things that I found was that um, I've, I was tempted in the past to, to start another business uh, myself. But then I keep running into founders that are a lot smarter than me. Uh, a lot more energy and, and crucially, m more focus. I think when you start investing and you've got capital to, to deploy, it's much harder to, to be super focused. And so it kind of makes sense uh, when you get older and uh, have more experience and more capital to, to invest in uh, founders who are, who are super focused. Yeah, I, I think you're too humble. I think anyone would, would be very excited to actually follow you in, a, in the next journey. But uh... That means a lot. And I do think that in some respects, being able to give back to from a lot of the learnings you've had is not only a form of mastery, right? And kind of, you know, honing that for yourself, but it's also a really big gift to the founders you back. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Paul, you know, been lucky to, to be on a number of boards with you. And I think that founders definitely massively value that, that approach and that kind of experience that you can, you can bring to those strategic discussions. Talking about strategic discussions, I think the next section we'd love to touch upon is a little bit around kind of more unpacking some of your investment thesis, how you think about your strategy, how you think about, you know, your approach to, to angel investing. Oh no, not about the thesis. Now, I mean, maybe to, to kick things off, if, if you could let the, the, the listeners know a little bit more about like, you know, where you are on that angel investing journey, you know, roughly how many companies you've invested in to date, what, if, if any geographic like focus you've had, you mentioned about obviously being in Cambridge and, and being part of that ecosystem in, in London more broadly, but do you invest internationally? Maybe we can kind of start moving the conversation in that direction. Yeah, I've invested in close to 90 companies now, and uh, it's predominantly software, quite a bit of fintech, SaaS, business to business software of various kinds. I've done quite a few verticals and more recently, quite a bit in the health space, in climate tech. Geographically, the majority in the UK, about 80% in the UK, uh, of those, most of them London-based companies. I tend to invest in, I do, I do some deep tech investing. More recently, I've done quite a few in um, biotech and pharma, but the majority is a kind of application-led software. A lot of those companies tend to be based in London. I like to work with founders in person. I like to meet them. I like to, to help them in person and participate in board meetings in person. So that's probably the main reason why the vast majority of my investing is, uh, is in UK-based companies. 
but I've also enjoyed investing in, in France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, and quite a bit in the US as well. As your angel investing has developed, you know, maybe from that first Saitora deal to, to where you are now, do you see any material changes in the way that you approach an investment opportunity? Obviously, with 90 companies, is it has the bar gone up? Has, has it changed in terms of you start to think about things more like a portfolio of sectors you have um, exposure to and sectors you don't? Or anything which has, I guess, changed in the, in the way that you approach new deals that I'm sure come across your desk on, on a very regular basis from people like myself and Anthony? I like to, I think from the beginning, I've always liked to invest in, as I mentioned before, ambitious founders, uh, but also products that are super simple and clear. And then market opportunities, I understand. So big market opportunities that uh, I can get my mind around. And um, in terms of evolution, I, I suppose my confidence in my abilities to select winners has probably gone down over time. I think when you're a founder and you've had a, a successful track record, you've perhaps had a big exit uh, or you've made money investing in, in somebody else's business, you have a high degree of confidence in your ability to, to pick winners. And I think over time, investing, uh, it, it's humbling. You, you can't really sort of um, escape that, uh, that power law that, uh, that means that not all of your companies are going to be winners. So I think that maybe what's changed is I'm more inclined to, to take more of a broader portfolio approach to try to invest in a broader number of companies with maybe smaller ticket sizes. Right now, I think my portfolio is probably a little bit imbalanced. I've got some quite big stakes in, in a few companies, and then I've got a long tail of um, investments where I'm more like a typical angel. Uh, however, I've really enjoyed where I've got bigger stakes in companies. I've tended to participate in the board, so I've either been a director or an observer on the board, so I've had a closer relationship with the companies, been more like a typical VC, I would say. Uh, so I'm kind of a combination of, of that uh, relationship with companies and then many companies where I'm more like a typical angel. And I guess you did mention the, the humbling part of, of investing, which is I think what keeps us all uh, to our toes and, and is a very important element. So diversification ends up being such an important element. You've done 90 companies, right? In some respects, so from a portfolio construction approach, as you said, it's a power law. You need to diversify. So how do you think about that trade-off between kind of diversification versus, you know, having capacity to, to support the founders that you back, right? You, you did mention some boards. You also mentioned variations on, you know, the types of check sizes you do and the level of involvement you have. Would love to un unpack that a bit. I think you need both. You need to have a high quality bar. And at the same time, you need to have a lot of investments. So obviously difficult to, to optimize both, but I feel like uh, you should have ideally at least you know 30 to 50 investments if you want to have a chance of capturing those outliers and at the same time you can't be you need to be careful about what you invest in you need to make sure uh, all the stars are aligned uh, and uh, you've got a good chance of of achieving a, a big outcome yeah I and mean, i think one theme is to be reasonably consistent in your check sizes that is going to enable you to be more consistent in the way you participate with companies. I think having scaled a tech business as a CEO and co-founder is one of the key things that was a, indeed was a US-based business and is now a global business. So that's 
the lessons from that, I think many of them are generic lessons which apply to uh, many early stage tech companies. So that would be one of the key things. And then that could be broken down into, into a number of elements, whether it's um, you know, sales, marketing, helping companies raise money, making introductions, generally trying to make good judgments when it comes to business decisions. Those would be some of the things. But every company is different. So it's very um, specific to the company. So I tend to uh, try to, to help companies where they have needs. And, uh, and those, those are quite um, diverse. On that, Paul, just picking up on that point, because I think it's, it's bang on. Um, and I remember, I think, other discussions maybe we've had over the years where you're, you're looking at something, maybe something we're looking at and some of the feedback which you provide. And obviously, those are the kind of characteristics you, you look for. And I think that's been very consistent in the, the way that, that we've definitely interacted over the years. Are there, are there things that are flags for you when you see a profile, when you see someone who's going on a founder journey, having been that founder yourself, having been through... <laughs> The ups and downs of you know at least you know two two businesses um, are the things which would stand out from a background of a founder that would that would give you pause before looking to proceed with an investment. No, I like uh, founders that have domain expertise. I think that in general, I'm less thesis driven. Uh, I'm more thesis agnostic. With experience, you build up a model of the world, and some of that's conscious. And some of that subconscious. And then when you see a business, it either fits uh, or it doesn't fit with that uh, model of the world that you have. And so that's the kind of pattern recognition, I think, that people talk about. And so it's difficult to list every single little thing that you, that you like and don't like about companies in advance of seeing them. You kind of, I think when you do your due diligence as well, you kind of dig in where you see there's a weakness. So, for example, if it's a very young inexperienced founding team, that's the kind of business where you're going to want to uh, do uh, referencing on the founders and do some um, uh, focus on um, what, those, what those founders uh, might be like as operators. Uh, whereas a more experienced team, you might be less, uh, maybe a, a team that's uh, already exited successfully from a business, you might be less inclined to do your due diligence there, maybe more market uh, due diligence that you're concerned about and you might want to focus more on that so i think that i think that it's about how the business fits into your your construct of the world and i think that's where experience can really help uh, both as a founder and as an, an investor and that's one of the things where i think when you get older and you have more experience some some things kind of decline i think your to some extent your mental capacities decline you can't think as fast as when you when you're in your 20s and uh, you can't necessarily do the longer hours that you maybe could have done when you were young, but you have the benefit of experience. You have uh, all those years of uh, pattern recognition that, um, that you can bring to bear. And so, in fact, I think investing is one of those things where you can actually get better as you get uh, older and more experienced. One thing which I'd love to touch on as well is how, how you think about, and I know we've, we've maybe weaved this into some questions before, but specifically how you think about kind of collaborating with either other angels, you know, are there angels who you regularly co-invest with, other VC funds, how you think about that kind of participation in the ecosystem, I suppose, to get to get deal flow and, and, and how you even work with those companies going forward? Yeah, one of the great things about being an angel is you're not really competing for deals. It's more about having visibility into the deal flow. And so one can work very collaboratively with other angels with VCs, a lot of the deal flow I get is uh, 
is from angels, it's from VCs, it's from other founders. And it's really, um, yeah, it's very collaborative. And also, I think one thing I like is there's a tremendous variety of ways you can participate. So there are instances where I've led deals. I mentioned Saitora. There are other deals as well. Griffin, Future Forest Company, where I've actually been more like a VC and actually led, led a seed round. And then there are instances where one can follow. A majority of my investing, I think I'd be following VCs. And then there's other cases. For example, Go Cardless. I'm an investor in that business. I didn't participate in any primary investments. I bought uh, shares from a couple of the founders. And then there's accidental investments. I'm, one of my uh, favorite investments is in Personio, which is one of Europe's most successful tech companies based in Germany. And I was an investor in a company called Rollbox based in uh, Barcelona doing a pay, uh, is a payroll, it was a payroll API company and it was bought by Personio. And I rolled my shares into Personio. So now I'm a shareholder in Personio, but that's kind of by accident, which is uh, really fortuitous. So yeah, so there's a tremendous uh, variety of ways you can, you can get involved and uh, invest in, in early stage companies as an angel. And check sizes, you can be very agnostic as well. I love the accidental investing side. Yeah, I, I remember the story with the Rollbox. I think it was 0.9 that did the investment, right? And, and then Persona acquired them for the payroll capability. Uh, very, very interesting. And the other thing I will touch on and um, that I can identify with, right? What we do also a bit with, with Coco and our style of investing is that I think it pays off a lot that, and, and I would love to hear your thoughts if you think so, to even though you are an angel to develop your own conviction, right? You did mention that there's been times where you've, let's say, led investments as an angel. I think that is, generally speaking, dependent on, let's say, around uh, composition, on the preferences of a founder. But more importantly, I think it requires a muscle as an angel to develop your own conviction, right? Because I must say that I have seen many angel investors that you know, a big part of their conviction tends to be who is the lead of a round, right? Um, what I found for myself, you know, doing collaborative investing, that it pays off to uh, actually develop your own conviction independently. Of course, part of that conviction factors in who is the lead VC rather than the other way around. I don't know whether you see it that way as well, or whether you have any views when it comes to conviction building vis-a-vis uh, -vis the round composition. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that one of the constraints is time. You, you can only, as an angel investor, you can only lead a certain number of deals, if any. I guess most people don't leave any, lead any deals. But I think there are instances where I have had conviction and where there's been a kind of a vacuum uh, where there's no VC lead. So a good example of that is Griffin, um, which is kind of an outlier business. Uh, Tom knows this business because it's a seed camp company. I was actually referred to it uh, not by... Um, uh, the investment team at Seedcamp, but actually one of the portfolio companies. It was actually um, Stephen Hunter from Ninesin referred it to me and um, started talking to David Jarvis and it had had at the time quite a checkered funding history. They, David had struggled to, to raise a seed round. He actually had a signed term sheet from a VC who I will um, not mention the name of, but um, they pulled out at the 11th hour. I think there was some uh, complications with the uh, technical complications with their LP base. And 
I think David was on the verge of chucking in the towel and um, or David and Alan, uh, they, they were close to closing it down. So it was really gratifying because I ended up leading that round and put a, put a very big check in for me, which is a nice instance of kind of where you feel like you've really added value because a lot of angel investing, you feel like your money is fungible. You know, you, if, you, if you're not investing, somebody else would invest. So you're not really changing the world. But it's nice it, where you come across instances where uh, it, it's possible that the company wouldn't exist if you haven't made your investment. And um, I, I don't think Dave would mind me mentioning that because that company now has gone on to do really, really well. It's now authorized as a bank, albeit with uh, restrictions. Hopefully, it'll be a fully-fledged bank soon and a successful bank. I was a director of that company for three years. And uh, so that's been um, an example of one where I did have conviction. I really struggled to get conviction, actually. I, I sort of, it gives you a window into how difficult it is to be a VC. It's hard to be an angel, but it's, I think, harder to be a VC because not only have you got to compete with other VCs, but you've got to build this conviction uh, where, you know, which is very different from, from following. And uh, so I've done that a few times. Another instance uh, was Future Forest Company. Uh, in the climate space, it's now become undo, and they're doing enhanced rock weathering, spreading basalt rock uh, to uh, basically sequester carbon. Uh, I saw that business through one of the carbon marketplaces and got really excited about the proposition and ended up uh, actually investing in that company through my family foundation. Uh, but uh, there are uh, instances like that. I think that with an angel check, you have to have conviction ideally you should have conviction as well and there is i guess a danger of relying too much on the halo effect of the lead investor one has to bear in mind that uh, the even the top tier uh, vcs the majority of their uh, companies that they invest in are not going to have exciting outcomes even the best vcs so therefore one must always remind oneself to to try to take an objective view as an investor. Try to distance yourself from 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 kind of the brand names of the companies investing. And a lot of the best investments are, of course, ones that haven't been led by brand name VCs. Great story. I think that I think the Griffin story would be a, a podcast in itself one day. Hopefully, hopefully when it's you know IPO'd and everyone's very very happy about that one, but. Yeah, exactly right in terms of coming in at that that crucial time. And so happy to see that one all come together. Now, maybe taking a step back from kind of direct company investing, one of the um, area that I'd love to to get your your thoughts on, Paul, is is investing in in VC funds as an angel. Like, is that something you've you've done? You've considered? How how do you think about that? I have done it. I don't do a huge amount. I prefer to invest direct, and I'm not sure if that's the best financial strategy. I, I tend to think you know the more I carry on doing my angel investing. I think, gosh, it would be actually easier just to invest in um, seed camp funds or cocoa funds, and uh, uh, you know, go to go onto the beach and go sailing or cycling, and That's my financial returns might end up <laughs> might end up better. But um, it's so much fun working uh, directly with founders. I tend to do that co-investing. Uh, having said that, I have invested in a few. Uh, I've invested, as I mentioned, in uh, Seed Camp, which um, is really, uh, I love the, the way that um, you guys uh, share deal flow early. Um, so that's been, been fantastic. 
Uh, and so it gives the opportunity to co-invest as well as being an LP. Uh, I've also, you know, enjoyed investing in Coco as well. And uh, again, getting involved, uh, getting referred to uh, deals that I've, in, I've co-invested in. There's been a few of those. I've invested in some of the Union Square Ventures funds. That was the VC that backed Indeed. And so I know that I've known that team for many years and enjoyed uh, being an LP in some of their funds. And I think that there's a North Zone fund that was a friends and family, uh, no fee, no carry fund, which is probably not a great reason to invest in a fund, but they're also a blue chip fund as well. So, uh, so I've enjoyed doing that. But yeah, the majority of my investing has been, has been direct. Would like to kind of dive into uh, a bit about your core learnings from angel investing. Out here learning more about them angels, are you? So if you had to share three core learnings, what would those be? Firstly, all stars should be aligned. I've said that I like to invest in ambitious founders, simple products, and market opportunities I understand. Obviously, it needs to be a big market opportunity, but I think you kind of need to have all of those things. There's a notion that... You just need to invest in really smart teams and they'll pivot their way to, the, to success. I think that's, to some extent, a myth. I think that teams can pivot when it's super early, but once you have a product, once you have customers, it becomes increasingly diff difficult to pivot. So therefore, uh, really to have a good chance of success, you want to have you know, the right team, the right product, the right market which of course is not difficult. It, it, it is difficult. It's very difficult to figure that out early stage. Sometimes you have traction metrics, which give you uh, indications of early indications of success, financial or engagement metrics. Often if you're investing pre-seed or seed, it's just too early to have those metrics. You just have to make really smart judgments about those, um, having those stars aligned. My second one would be, and we've talked about this earlier, is the power law. You just can't escape the power law, whether you're an angel investor or a VC investor. The vast majority uh, of your returns is going to be driven by no more than 10% of the capital you invest. And I think the, the lesson from that is to yeah have a diversified portfolio. Don't um, uh, concentrate too much. Try to you know, equalize your check sizes. I don't I'm not sure I've really done this myself, as I mentioned before. I have done very lumpy investments. But I think if I was starting again, I'd probably say, look, try to be reasonably consistent in the check sizes you write and try to build up a reasonably uh, large number of investments to have a chance of catching these outliers. So again, as you've got to uh, have a high quality bar and have all the stars aligned, which was my first point at the same time. And my first one, third one is um, stay close to the founders and support the founders, but try not to go native. So when you've been a founder yourself, your inclination is to be sympathetic to the founders, to do everything you can to sort of be on their side versus the maybe to some of the VCs. You might want to operate in a way that... Um, that is more consistent with, with the way they are thinking. Uh, however, you have to remember that you are an, you're actually an investor. You're not a founder yourself. So when it comes to key decisions like follow-on funding, 
or um, uh, perhaps taking advantage of secondaries, you have to take a step back and remember, actually, financially, you're much more aligned with, with the VCs. Uh, you're not a founder and you need to take an objective view. And it's, it's quite hard to do that. And I've done a lot of follow-on investing, arguably you know, too much follow-on investing. If I, if I took a st- step back and said, look, is this financially a really objective decision? And so maybe having some simple rules would help. So for example, maybe only follow in the top quartile of your portfolio, if you can rank them somehow, and you know, maybe try to take advantage of uh, secondary sale opportunities if they become available, um, rather than always doubling down. This is advice I haven't followed myself. So you know, do, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, but these would be some of the learnings, I think, in retrospect. I wanted to touch on uh, the first thing you said, which is so true, which is about how hard it is to get a pre-seed right kind of like, you know, founder and market and product or go to market, let's say. But, at, you know, many times it's, it's just too early, right? So you have to take that risk. And so, you know, this tends to be a debate and, you know, opinions are as many as people sometimes. But what, what would you say if you had to choose between, you know, founder versus markets? What would you do? What would you choose? I think you'd have to have both. And you probably have to have the discipline to walk away if you, you know, really love the founding team, but just have sort of big question marks over the market or vice versa. I mean, I think that one of the early things, one of the early mistakes as, as an angel is often to project. So you, love, you fall in love with the market opportunity and you, you kind of think, well, if I, if I was a founder doing that, I'd absolutely kill it because it's such a fabulous market opportunity. But you have to remember it's not you, it's, it's a team, it's somebody else doing it. So I think that um, my answer to that would be you need to have both right in team, uh, the market opportunity, and then it has to be the right sort of product to attack that market. Then what, one more I'd pick, pick up on is that, that third one about thinking through with an investor kind of hat on versus being you know, incredibly close and, and aligned with the founder. And I'm sure that's, that's evolved um, as you've been investing for longer and maybe been further away from that founder role and more in, in the angel investing role. When you think back, I guess it was, I think it's your first company, Paul, which you founded around the kind of dot-com period before moving on to, to Indeed if, if, and selling that one and then, and then starting Indeed, if I'm correct. If you look at the market we've we've been through over the last couple of years, and then obviously we're in a very different stage of that market, having lived through or been in 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 and around the technology space around kind of like when the dot com was was coming through, it, I mean, did you see any 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 similarities, any signs, and did that influence any of your investing decisions during that time? Did you feel like the market was heating up? You know, having that experience from 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 living through different parts of the cycle. Yeah, definitely. I think that the business I founded, uh, co-founded before Indeed, uh, that was during the dot-com bubble. We actually never raised, uh, it was a job site for financial professionals. We never raised uh, venture capital funding. Uh, we kind of missed the, uh, missed the boat. And it was a good thing because we ended up building that into a profitable business, but um, it was never going to be a venture scale business. So when we sold that business, we uh, took all that learning and that domain expertise into Indeed, which which turned out to be a very big business. And um, so I think that, you know, we, the DNA of being, of bootstrapping, of being very capital efficient, uh, we got from that, and which is one of the reasons why Indeed was able to get to where it, uh, it has with only one round of capital with 5 million Series A. And so I do, I think that's sort of coming back into fashion now. So I think that um, learning to be capital efficient 
is a really important lesson for for founders and i think it's one that many founders are starting to learn today so uh, but i'm not sure if i've if i've really anticipated all the cycles in advance i mean i think that i was doing a lot of investing at the peak at high valuations like uh, you know everybody else and you know it's kind of hard to see it when you're in the middle of it so and i think now people think you know this downturn is going to last forever but of course it's not uh, so one has to you know maybe take the sort of buffett view to um to be a bit counterintuitive in one's uh, investing strategy one other thing that uh, i didn't mention in terms of learnings is uh, be careful in your own domain uh, my worst investment track record is actually in uh, recruitment, uh, online uh, recruitment uh, companies. I'm trying to figure out, I'm still trying to figure out why that is. I've got uh, kind of two and a half failures in that, uh, in that space. And maybe it's overconfidence that you can kind of jump into, into decisions where you feel like you, you know the space and you're maybe a bit less objective. Or maybe it's just that it's an olig oligopolistic space because of Indeed and LinkedIn, and it's too hard to compete in that space. But um, I think it's, there is a generic lesson for angels to be to treat their own domain a little bit differently from others. You, you kind of look at the space that you've founded a business in differently, and so should maybe be a little bit more cautious about the way you invest there. You do see when people have that kind of like deep domain expertise. Okay, so final section is a quickfire section. We love to end the episodes with this kind of quickfire round. They're quick answers, ideally 30 to seconds each. How does, how does that sound? That's fine, yeah. Just trying to remember my, uh, my, three, my three things, but yeah, yeah, carry on. Okay, so first question. What was the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned since you started angel investing? So the, I think don't be too rigid in your investment thesis. One of my anti-portfolio companies, Thought Machine, that uh, business sells core banking software to incumbent banks. And I guess I felt like it, it makes more sense to invest in businesses that are building their own core banking infrastructure. And in fact, I invested in Monzo, I invested in Griffin that are doing exactly that. But Thought Machine has gone on to do fabulously well. And so therefore, I think the lesson is you can invest in different theses that may even be contradictory to each other. What would be your top tips to angels wanting to do more international investments? I think it's building networks, particularly with investors. One of the first markets I went into after the UK was Germany. And I got to know some of the team at Cherry Ventures. And I ended up investing in a company that they referred me to called Climatic, which is in the, in the climate space. It's an embedded carbon intelligence uh, platform. And um, I think that if you can build those VC relationships, that's... And, and, relationships with angels as well it pick a particular market so focus on that try to build get tap into the ecosystem in that market and then build on that so germany i've done quite a few investments in subsequent to that and uh, that's been great what advice would you give your 10-year younger self if you only had 30 seconds start slowly as an angel investor again it's almost counterintuitive that um when you're a founder you you're rewarded for moving fast. Uh, you can iterate. 
And if you don't move fast, you're unlikely to succeed. With, with, with investing, it's almost the opposite. If you move too fast, uh, you can fail uh, because your decisions, you can't really iterate or not in the same way. Your decisions are binary. It's uh, in the context of asymmetric information. So therefore, I think the lesson is to uh, don't have check sizes that are too big uh, and don't make too many investments too early. Your, the quality of your deal flow and the quality of your decision making will improve over time. So, um, so take it easy at the beginning. Well, it's people like you that make the ecosystem better. Uh, so thank you so much for joining and sharing some of your wisdom with fellow angels, investors, and founders alike. Thanks, Paul. Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say, Touched by an angel, girl. Bro. Bro. Bro.